Chapter 19, Part 2 The fifth point to be discussed is the love of God in making us children. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 1 John 3, 1 God showed power in making us creatures, but He showed love in making us His children. Plato gave God thanks that He had made Him a man and not a beast. But what cause they have to adore God's love who has made them children? The Apostle puts a behold to it. So that we may better behold God's love in making us children, consider these three things. 1. We were deformed. When I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, it was the time of love. Ezekiel 16, 6, 8. Mordecai adopted Esther because she was fair, but we were in our blood when God adopted us. He did not adopt us when we were clothed with the robe of innocence in paradise, or when we were adorned with the jewels of holiness and were clean and healthy, but when we were in our blood and had our leprous spots upon us. The time of our loathing was the time of God's loving. 2. Just as we didn't deserve to be made children, neither did we desire it. No rich person will force another to become his heir against his will. If a king wanted to adopt a beggar and make him heir of the crown, and if the beggar would refuse the king's favor and say, I would rather be as I am, I want to remain a beggar, the king would take it as high contempt of his favor and would not adopt him against his will. This is how it was with us. We had no willingness to be made God's children. We would have still been begging, but God, out of His infinite mercy and indulgence, not only offers to make us children, but makes us willing to embrace the offer. Psalm 110, 3. Behold, what manner of love this is. 1 John 3, 1. And 3. It is the wonder of love that God would adopt us for His children when we were enemies. If a person wants to make someone heir of his land, he would choose someone who is closely related to him. No one would choose an enemy. But what amazing, astonishing love that God would make us children when we were enemies, that He would make us heirs to the crown when we were traitors to the crown. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 1 John 3, 1. We were not related to God. By sin we had lost and forfeited our pedigree. We had done God all the wrong and offense we could. We defaced His image, violated His law, and trampled upon His mercies. Yet when we had angered Him, He adopted us. What amazing love this was! Such love was never shown to the angels. When they fell, though they were of a more noble nature, and in probability might have done God more service than we can, God never gave this privilege of adoption to them. He did not make them children, but prisoners. They were heirs only to the treasures of wrath. Romans 2, 5. Let all who are closely related to God in this way admire His love. When they were like Saul, breathing forth enmity against God, when their hearts stood out as garrisons against him, the Lord conquered their stubbornness with kindness and not only pardoned, but adopted them. It is hard to say which is greater, the mystery or the mercy. This is incredible, amazing love, and we will be searching into it and adoring it to all eternity. The bottom of it cannot be fathomed by any angel in heaven. God's love in making us children is a rich love. It is love in God to feed us, but it is rich love to adopt us. It is love to give us a crumb, but it is rich love to make us heirs to a crown. It is a distinguishing love that when God has passed by so many millions, He would favorably look upon you. Most are cut out for fuel and are made vessels of wrath. Romans 9.22 It is the mirror of mercy and pinnacle of love that God would say to you, You are my child. Who can tread upon these hot coals and his heart not burn 
in love to God. Proverbs 6.28 The sixth point is the honor and renown of God's children. To illustrate this, I want you to observe two things. One, God makes a precious account of them, and two, He looks upon them as people of honor. One, God makes a precious account of them. Since thou wast precious in my sight, Isaiah 43, 4. A father values his child above his possessions. How dearly did Jacob treasure Benjamin! His life was bound up in the lad's life. Genesis 44:30 God makes a precious valuation of his children The wicked are of no account with God they are vile people I will make thy grave for thou art vile Nahum 1:14 Therefore the wicked are compared to chaff Psalm 1:4 and to dross Psalm 119:119 119, 119. There is little use of a wicked person while he lives and no loss of him when he dies. There is only a little chaff blown away, which may well be done without. However, God's children are precious in His sight. They are His jewels, Malachi 3.17. The wicked are merely lumber that serves only to cumber the ground, Luke 13.7. But God's children are His jewels locked up in the cabinet of His decree from all eternity. God's children are the apple of his eye, Zechariah 2 8. They are very dear and very tender to him, and the eye of his special providence covers them. The Lord considers everything of his children precious. Their name is precious. The wicked leave their name for a curse, Isaiah 65 15. The names of God's children are embalmed, Isaiah 60 15. So precious are their names that God enters them in the book of life, and Christ carries them on his chest. How precious must their name necessarily be who have God's own name written upon them! Him that overcometh, I will write upon him the name of my God. Revelation 3 12. Their prayers are precious. O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice. Song of Solomon 2.14. Every child of God is this dove. Prayer is the voice of the dove, and sweet is this voice. The prayer of God's children is as sweet to him as music. A wicked man's prayer is as the howling of a dog. Hosea 7.14. The prayer of the saints is as the singing of the bird. The finger of God's Spirit touches the lute strings of their hearts, and they make melody to the Lord. Their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. Isaiah 56 7. Their tears are precious. They drop as pearls from their eyes. I have seen thy tears. Isaiah 38 5. The tears of God's children drop as precious wine into God's bottle. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Psalm 56, 8. A tear from a broken heart is a present for the King of Heaven. Their blood is precious. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Psalm 116, 15. This is the blood God will primarily make inquisition for. Athaliah shed the blood of the king's children. 2 Kings 11, 1. The saints are the children of the Most High, and those who shed their blood will pay dearly for it. Thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Revelation 16, 6. And two, God looks upon his children as people of honor. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. Isaiah 43, 4. God esteems them honorable. He calls them a crown and a royal diadem, Isaiah 62, 3. He calls them His glory, Israel my glory, Isaiah 46, 13. God makes them honorable. As a king creates dukes, marquises, earls, barons, etc., so God places His children into honor. He makes them into noble people, 
people of renown. David thought it was no small honor to be the king's son-in-law. Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? 1 Samuel 18.18 What an infinite honor it is to be the children of the high God, to be of the royal blood of heaven. The saints are of an ancient family. They are descended from the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, 9. The best pedigree is that which comes from heaven. Here the youngest child is an heir, a co-heir with Christ, who is heir of all. Romans 8, 17, Hebrews 1, 2. Consider the honor of God's children positively and comparatively. Positively, they have titles of honor. They are called kings, Revelation 1, 6, the excellent of the earth, Psalm 16, 3, and vessels unto honor, 2 Timothy 2, 21. They have their coats of armor. You may see the coats of armor of the saints. The Scripture has set forth their insignias. Sometimes they give the lion in regard to their courage, Proverbs 28, 1. Sometimes they give the eagle in regard to their nobleness. They are ever flying up to heaven upon the two wings of faith and love. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, Isaiah 40, 31. Sometimes they give the dove in regard to their meekness and innocence, Song of Solomon 2, 14. This shows the children of God to be people of renown. Comparatively, this comparison is double. Compare the children of God with Adam and also with the angels. Compare the children of God with Adam in a state of innocence. Adam was a person of honor. He was the sole monarch of the world. All the creatures bowed to him as their sovereign. Genesis 1.26 Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden, which was a paradise of pleasure. He was crowned with all the delights of the earth. Even more, Adam was God's living image. He was made in the likeness of God himself. Genesis 1.27 Yet the state of the lowest of God's children by adoption is far more excellent and honorable than the state that Adam was in when he wore the robe of innocence. For Adam's condition, although it was glorious, yet it was changeable and was soon lost. Adam was a bright star, yet a falling star. God's children by adoption are in an unalterable state. Adam had a posse non peccare. A possibility of standing. But believers have a non posse peccare, an impossibility of falling, once adopted and forever adopted. As Isaac said after he had given the blessing to Jacob, I have blessed him and he shall be blessed. Genesis 27 33. So may we say of all God's children that they are adopted and they shall be adopted. God's children are in a better and more glorious condition now than Adam was in all his regal honor and majesty. Now let us ascend as high as heaven and compare God's children with the glorious and blessed angels. God's children are equal to the angels and are in some sense above them, so they must be people of honor. God's children are equal to the angels. This is acknowledged by some of the angels themselves. I am thy fellow servant, Revelation 19:10. Here is a parallel made between John and the angel. The angel said to John, I am thy fellow servant. The children of God by adoption are in some sense above the angels, and that in two ways. The angels are servants to God's children, Hebrews 1:14. Although they are glorious spirits, yet they are ministering spirits. The angels are the saints' servants. We have examples in Scripture of angels waiting upon God's children. We read of angels waiting upon Abraham, Moses, Daniel, the mother of Jesus, etc. Nor do the angels only render service to God's children while they live, but also at their death. Lazarus had a convoy of angels to carry him into the paradise of God. Luke 16:22 Thus we see that the children of God have a preeminence and dignity above the angels. 
The angels are their servants, both living and dying. And this is more to be observed because it is never said in Scripture that the children of God are servants to the angels. And God's children are above the angels because Christ, by taking their nature, has elevated and honored it above the angelic. He took not on him the nature of angels. Hebrews 2.16. By uniting us to Christ, God has made us nearer to himself than the angels. The children of God are members of Christ. Ephesians 5.30. This was never said of the angels. How can they be members of Christ who are of a different nature from him? Indeed, metaphorically and improperly, Christ may be called the head of the angels since they are subject unto him. 1 Peter 3.22. However, we find nowhere in Scripture that Christ is head of the angels in that close and sweet connection as he is head of the believers. In this respect, therefore, I may clearly assert that the children of God have a superiority and honor even above the angels. Although by creation they are a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8, 5, Hebrews 2, 7, yet by adoption and spiritual union they are above the angels. How this may comfort a child of God in the midst either of slander or poverty. He is a person of honor. He is above the angels. A gentleman who has fallen to ruin will sometimes boast of his parentage and noble blood, and a Christian who is poor in the world is of the family of God by virtue of his adoption. He has the true royal blood running in his veins. He has a more handsome coat of arms to show than the angels themselves. The seventh point to be explained is to show the glorious privileges of God's children. What I will say now does not belong to the wicked. It is children's bread. The fruit of paradise was to be kept with a flaming sword, and these sweet and heart-ravishing privileges are to be kept with a flaming sword, so that impure, carnal people may not touch them. There are twelve rare privileges that belong to the children of God. 1. If we are children, then God will be full of tender love and affection toward us. A father has compassion for his child. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Psalm 103.13. Oh, the yearning of God's heart for his children! Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? My bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 31.20. God's wrath is kindled toward the wicked. Psalm 2.12. God's repentings are kindled towards those who are children. Hosea 11.8. Mercy and compassion flow as naturally from our Heavenly Father as light from the sun. Some may object and say that God is angry and writes harsh things. How does this stand with love? God's love and anger toward His children are not in opposition, but show a difference. They may stand together. He is angry in love. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Revelation 3.19 We have as much need of afflictions as ordinances. A bitter pill may be as needful for preserving health as a refreshing drink. God afflicts with the same love as He adopts. God is most angry when he is not angry. His hand is heaviest when it is lightest. Hosea 14.4. Affliction is an argument of sonship. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. Hebrews 12.7. Someone might say, Surely God doesn't love me. I'm not his child because he doesn't follow me with such severe afflictions. It is a sign of childship to be sometimes under the rod. God had one son without sin, but no son without stripes. God puts His children to the school of the cross, and there they learn best. God speaks to us in the Word. Children, do not be proud. Do not love the world. 1 John 2.15. Walk circumspectly. Ephesians 5.15. 
However, we are dull of hearing. Hebrews 5:11. We even stop our ears. I spake unto thee in thy prosperity, but thou saidst, I will not hear. Jeremiah 22:21. God says that he will lose his child if he doesn't correct him. Then God in love smites so that he may save. Aristotle spoke of a bird that lives among thorns, yet sings sweetly. God's children make the best melody in their heart when God hedges up their way with thorns. Hosea 2, 6. Afflictions are refining. The fining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold. Proverbs 17, 3. Fiery trials make golden Christians. Afflictions are purifying. Many shall be purified and made white and tried. Daniel 12, 10. We think God is going to destroy us, but He only intends to purify us. Some birds will not hatch except during times of thunder. Christians are commonly best in affliction. God will make His children at last bless Him for sufferings. The eyes that sin shuts, affliction opens. When Manasseh was in chains, then he knew that the Lord he was God. 2 Chronicles 33, 13. Afflictions prepare us for heaven. The stones of Solomon's temple were first hewn and polished and then set up into a building. The saints, who are called living stones, 1 Peter 2, 5, must be hewn and carved by sufferings as the cornerstone was, and so made ready for the celestial building. Colossians 1, 12. Is there not love in all God's fatherly chastisements? Another objection may be that sometimes God's children are under the black clouds of desertion. Is not this far from love? Concerning desertion, I must say that this is the saddest condition that can happen to God's children. When the sun is gone, the dew falls. When the sunlight of God's countenance is removed, the dew of tears falls from the eyes of the saints. The arrows of the Almighty are within me, the poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. Job 6, 4. This is the poisoned arrow that wounds the heart. Desertion is a taste of the torments of the damned. God says, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee. Isaiah 54, 8. I may here comment with Bernard. Lord, do you call that a little wrath when you hide your face? Is it but a little? What can be more bitter to me than the eclipsing of your face? In the Scripture, God is called a light and a fire. The deserted soul feels the fire but does not see the light. You who are adopted may spell love in all this. They say of Hercules' club that it was made of olive wood. The olive is an emblem of peace. So God's club, whereby He beats down the soul in desertion, has something of the olive. There is peace and mercy in it. I will hold forth a spiritual rainbow, wherein the children of God may see the love of their Father in the midst of the clouds of desertion. Therefore, I answer. A. In time of desertion, God leaves in His children a seed of comfort. His seed remaineth in Him. 1 John 3, 9. This seed of God is a seed of comfort. Although God's children in desertion lack the seal of the Spirit, yet they have the anointing of the Spirit. 1 John 2, 27. Although they lack the Son, yet they have a day star in their hearts. 2 Peter 1, 19. The tree in winter, although it has lost its leaves and fruit, still has sap in the root. In the same way, in the winter of desertion, the sap of grace remains in the root of the heart. The sun masks itself with a cloud when it denies light to the earth, yet it still gives forth its influence, and although God's dear adopted ones may lose sight of His countenance, they still have the influence of His grace. What grace appears in the time of desertion? I answer, greatly valuing God's love. If God would say to the deserted soul, What will you have, and it will be granted to half of the kingdom? He would reply, 
Lord, that I might see you as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, that I may have one golden beam of your love. Psalm 63, 2. The deserted soul disregards all other things in comparison. It is not gardens or orchards or the most delightful objects that can give him contentment. They are like music to a sad heart. He desires, as Absalom, to see the king's face. 2 Samuel 14.32 Lamenting after the Lord It is the saddest day for him when the Son of Righteousness is eclipsed. A child of God can better bear the world's attacks than God's absence. He is even melted into tears. The clouds of desertion produce spiritual rain, and from where does this weeping come except from love? Willingness to suffer anything in order to have a sight of God. A child of God could be content with Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross if he were sure Christ were upon it. He could willingly die if, with Simeon, he might die with Christ in his arms. Luke 2 28 to 32. See here the seed of God in a believer, the work of sanctification, when he lacks the wine of consolation. B. I answer that God has a plan of mercy in hiding His face from His adopted ones. First it is for the trial of grace, and there are two graces brought to trial in time of desertion, faith and love. Faith, when we can believe against sense and feeling, when we are without experience yet can trust the promise, when we don't have the kisses of God's mouth, Song of Solomon 1-2, yet can hold on to the word of His mouth. This is faith indeed. This is the sparkling of the diamond. And love, when God smiles upon us, it is not much for us to love Him, but when He seems to put us away in anger, Psalm 27, 9, now to love Him and be as the lime, the more water that is thrown upon it, the hotter it burns, this is love indeed. That love is truly as strong as death. Song of Solomon 8, 6 that the waters of desertion cannot quench. Secondly, it is for the exercise of grace. We are all for comfort. If we are given the choice, we would always be upon Mount Pisgah, looking into Canaan. We are reluctant to be in trials, agonies, and desertions, as if God could not love us unless He had us in His arms. It's hard to lie a long time in the lap of spiritual joy and not fall asleep. Too much sunshine causes a drought in our graces. Often when God lets down comfort into the heart, we begin to let down care. As it is with musicians, before they have money, they will play you many sweet songs, but as soon as you throw them down money, they are gone. You hear no more of them. Before joy and assurance, oh, the sweet music of prayer and repentance! But when God throws down the comforts of His Spirit, we either leave off duty or at least slacken the strings of our violin and grow remiss in it. You are taken with the money, but God is taken with the music. Grace is better than comfort. Rachel is fairer, but Leah is more fruitful. Comfort is fair to look upon, but grace has the fruitful womb. The only way to exercise grace and make it more vigorous and active is sometimes to walk in darkness and have no light. Isaiah 50.10 Faith is a star that shines brightest in the night of desertion. I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Jonah 2.4 Grace usually puts forth its most heroic acts at such a time. C. I answer, God may forsake His children in regard to vision, but not in regard to union. This is how it was with Jesus Christ when He cried out, My God, my God! Matthew 27, 46. There was not a separation of the union between Him and His Father, but only a suspension of the vision. God's love through the trespass of our sins may be darkened and eclipsed, but He is still a Father. The sun may be hidden in a cloud, but it's not out of the firmament. The promises in time of desertion may seem distant. We don't have the comfort from them as previously. But still, the believer's title 
holds good in law. D. I answer, when God hides his face from his child, his heart may be toward him. As Joseph, when he spoke roughly to his brethren and made them believe he thought they were spies, still his heart was toward them, and he was as full of love as ever he could hold. Genesis 42. He wanted to go aside and weep. In the same way, God is full of love to his children even when he seems to look unfamiliar. Moses' mother put her child into the ark of bulrushes and went away a little from it, yet her eye was still toward it. Exodus 2. The babe wept. Yes, and the mother wept too. So God, when he goes aside as if he had forsaken his children, is still full of sympathy and love toward them. God may change his countenance without breaking his covenant. It's one thing for God to desert, and another thing for him to disinherit. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? Hosea 11 8. It is a metaphor taken from a father going to disinherit his son, and while he is setting his hand to the deed, his heart begins to melt and to yearn over him, and he thinks within himself, Even though he is a prodigal child, he is still my child. I will not cut off the estate. So God says, How shall I give thee up? Although Ephraim has been a rebellious son, yet he is still a son, and I will not disinherit him. God's thoughts may be full of love, even when there is a veil upon his face. The Lord may change his dispensation toward his children, but not his disposition. He may have the look of an enemy, but the heart of a father. The believer may therefore say, I am adopted. Let God do what he will with me. Let him use the rod or the staff. It is all the same. He loves me. 2. The second privilege of adoption is that if we are children, then God will tolerate many weaknesses. A father tolerates much with a child he loves. I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Malachi 3.17. We often grieve the Spirit and abuse his kindness. God will overlook much in his children. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Numbers 23.21. His love does not make him blind. He sees sin in his people, not with an eye of revenge, but with compassion. He sees sin in his children as a physician views a disease in his patient. He has not seen iniquity in Jacob so as to destroy him. God may use the rod, 2 Samuel 7.14, but not the scorpion. Oh, how much God is willing to put up with in his children, because they are children. God takes notice of the good that is in his children, and he looks past the weaknesses. God does quite the opposite that we do. We often take notice of the evil that is in others and overlook the good. Our eye is upon the flaw in the diamond, but we do not observe its sparkling. But God takes notice of the good that is in his children. God sees their faith and winks at or overlooks their failings. Acts 17.30 Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 1 Peter 3.6 The Holy Spirit does not mention her unbelief and laughing at the promise, but takes notice of the good in her, her obedience to her husband. She obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. God puts his finger upon the scars and infirmities of his children. How much did God overlook in Israel, his firstborn? Israel often provoked him with their murmurings, Deuteronomy 1.27, but God answered their murmurings with mercies. He spared them as a father spares his son. 3. The third privilege is that if we are children, then God will accept our imperfect services. A parent takes anything that is good from his child. God accepts the will for the deed. 2 Corinthians 8.12 We often come with broken prayers, but if we are children, God spells out our meaning and will accept our prayers as a grateful present. A father loves to hear his child speak, even if he only lisps and stammers. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. Isaiah 38, 14. Good Hezekiah 
looked upon his praying as chattering. Yet that prayer was heard. Isaiah 38, 5. A sigh and groan from a humble heart goes up as the smoke of incense. My groaning is not hid from thee. Psalm 38, 9. When all the glittering shows of hypocrites evaporate and come to nothing, a little that a child of God does in sincerity is crowned with acceptance. A father is glad of a letter from his son even if there are blots, misspellings, and broken English in the letter. Oh, what blots there are in our holy things! What broken English sometimes! Yet, coming from broken hearts, it is accepted. Though there is weakness in duty, yet if there is willingness, the Lord willingly accepts it. God says, He is my child, and He wants to do better. He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1 6. 4. If we are children, then God will provide for us. A father will care for his children. He gives them what they need and lays up a portion for them. 2 Corinthians 12 14. Our Heavenly Father does the same for his children. He gives us what we need. The God which fed me all my life long unto this day. Genesis 48.15. Where does our daily bread come from, except from His daily care? God will not let His children starve, even if our unbelief is sometimes ready to question His goodness and ask, Can God prepare a table? See what arguments Christ brings to prove God's paternal care for His children. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Matthew 6.26. Does a man feed his bird, and will he not feed his child? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you, that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Luke 12.27-28. Does God clothe the lilies, and will He not clothe His lambs? He careth for you. 1 Peter 5.7. As long as His heart is full of love, His head will be full of care. This should be as medicine to kill the worm of unbelief. As God provides for His children along the way, so He lays up a portion for them. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. Our Father keeps the wallet and will give us enough to carry out our duties here. And when at death we move on and will be set upon the shore of eternity, then our Heavenly Father will bestow upon us a kingdom that is abiding and imperishable. This is a portion that is so great that it can never be calculated. 5. If we are children, then God will shield off dangers from us. A father will protect his child from wrongs. God always guards us to keep off evil from his children, both earthly evil and spiritual evil. God shields us from earthly evil. There are many casualties and contingencies that are incident to life. God mercifully prevents them. He keeps watch and care for his children. My defense is of God. Psalm 7, 10. He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121, 4. The eye of providence is always awake. God gives his angels charge over his children. Psalm 91, 11. A believer has a guard of angels to protect him. We read of the wings of God in Scripture. As he feeds his children by his mercy, so he covers them with the wings of his power. How miraculously God preserved Israel, his firstborn. With his wings sometimes covered, he sometimes carried them. He carried them on eagles' wings, Exodus 19, 4, an emblem of God's providential care. The eagle fears no bird from above to hurt her young, only the arrow from beneath. Therefore, she carries them upon her wings so that the arrow must first hit her before it can hurt her young ones. God carries His children upon the wings of providence, and His wings cannot be clipped, nor can any arrow hurt them. 
God shields off spiritual evils from his children. There shall no evil befall thee. Psalm 91.10 God does not say that no afflictions will befall us, but no evil. Some people say that sometimes evil in this sense befalls the godly. They tarnish themselves with sin. I answer that the evil will not be deadly. As mercury is in itself dangerous, but by ointments it is so diluted that it is no longer deadly, so sin is in itself deadly, but being abated with repentance and mixed with the sacred ointment of Christ's blood, its venomous, damning nature is taken away. 6. If we are children, then God will reveal to us great and wonderful things from His law. I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Matthew 11.25 A father will teach his children. A child goes to his father and says, Father, teach me my lesson. In the same way, David went to God and said, Teach me to do Thy will, for Thou art my God. Psalm 143.10 The Lord glories in this title, I am the Lord thy God which teacheth thee to profit. Isaiah 48, 17. God's children have that anointing that teaches them all things necessary to salvation. They see those mysteries that are veiled over to carnal eyes, just as Elisha saw those horses and chariots of fire that his servant did not see. 2 Kings 6, 17. The adopted see their own sins, Satan's snares, and Christ's beauty, which those whom the God of the world has blinded cannot discern. How was it that David understood more than the ancients? Psalm 119.100. He had a father to teach him. God was his instructor. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth. Psalm 71.17. Many children of God complain of ignorance and dullness. Remember this, your Father will be your teacher. He has promised to give His Spirit to guide you into all truth. John 16.13 God not only informs the understanding, but He also inclines the will. He not only teaches us what we should do, but He also enables us to do it. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Ezekiel 36.27. What a glorious privilege this is to have the star of the Word pointing us to Christ and the magnet of the Spirit drawing us to Him. 7. If we are children, this gives us boldness in prayer. The child goes with confidence to his father, who cannot find in his heart to deny him. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Luke 11.13 Everything that the Father has is for His child. If He earns money, who is it for but His child? If you go to God for pardon and for brokenness of heart, God cannot deny His child. Whom does He keep His mercies in store for except His children? That which may give God's children holy boldness in prayer is when they consider God not only in the relation of a father, but also as having the disposition of a father. Some parents are of a cheerless, unkind nature, but God is the Father of mercies. 2 Corinthians 1 3. He produces all the compassion in the world. In prayer, we should look upon God under this notion that He is a Father of mercy who is sitting upon a throne of grace. We should run to this heavenly Father in all circumstances. We should run to Him in our sins, as that sick child who said unto his father, My head, my head, 2 Kings 4.19. As soon as he found himself not well, he ran to his father to help him. In the case of sin, we should run to God and say, My heart, my heart, oh, this dead heart, Father, revive it, soften this hard heart. Father, my heart, my heart. We should run to God in our temptations. When one child hits another child, the child who was hit runs to his father and complains. In the same way, when the devil strikes us by his temptations, let us run to our father and say, Father, 
Satan assaults us and hurls his fiery darts. He not only wants to wound my peace, but also your glory. Father, remove the tempter. Your child is troubled by this red dragon. Father, will you not bruise Satan under my feet? What a sweet privilege this is! When any burden lies upon our spirits, we may go to our Father and unburden to Him all our cares and griefs. 8. If we are children, then we are in a state of freedom. Claudius Lysias valued his freedom of Rome at a high rate. Acts 22.28. A state of sonship is a state of freedom. This is not to be understood in an antinomian sense that the children of God are freed from the rule of the moral law. This is the kind of freedom that rebels want. Was it ever heard that a child was freed from duty to his parents? The freedom that God's children have is a holy freedom. They are freed from the law of sin. Romans 8 2. It is the sad misery of an unsaved person that he is in a state of servitude. He is under the tyranny of sin. Justin Martyr used to say that it is the greatest slavery in the world for a person to be subject to his own passions. A wicked person is as much a slave as he who works in a galley ship. Look into his heart, and you will see many lusts ruling him. He must do what sin desires him to do. A slave is at the service of a usurping tyrant. If he tells him to dig in the mine, hew in the quarries, or row at the oar, he must do it. In the same way, every wicked person must do what corrupt nature inspired by the devil tells him to do. If sin tells him to be drunk or to be immoral, he is at the command of sin, just as the horse is at the command of the driver. Sin first enslaves and then damns. However, the children of God, although they are not free from sin being in them, are freed from the law of sin. All sin's commands are like laws repealed that are not in force. Although sin lives in a child of God, it does not reign in him. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Romans 6.14. Sin does not have a coercive power over a child of God. There is a principle of grace in his heart that restricts and hinders corruption. This is a believer's comfort. Although sin is not removed, yet it is subdued. Although he cannot keep sin out, yet he keeps sin in submission. The saints of God are said to have crucified the flesh. Galatians 5.24. Crucifying was a lingering death. First one part of the body died, and then another. Every child of God crucifies sin. Some limb of the old man is every now and then dropping off. Although sin does not die entirely, it dies daily. This is the blessed freedom of God's children. They are freed from the law of sin. They are led by the Spirit of God. Romans 8.14. This Spirit makes them free and cheerful in obedience. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians 3.17. 9. If we are children, then we are heirs apparent to all the promises. The promises are called precious. 2 Peter 1.4. The promises are a cabinet of jewels. They are full of the milk of the gospel. The promises are enriched with variety and are suited to a Christian's current condition. Does he need pardoning grace? There is a promise that carries forgiveness in it. Jeremiah 31.34. Does he need sanctifying grace? There is a promise of healing. Hosea 14.4. Does he need strengthening grace? There is a promise of strength. Isaiah 41.10. These promises are the children's bread. The saints are called heirs of promise. Hebrews 6.17. There is Christ and heaven in a promise, and there is not a promise in the Bible to which an adopted person may not lay a legal claim to and say, This is mine. The natural man who remains in the old family has nothing to do with these promises. He may read over the promises, as one may read over another person's will or inventory, but he has no right to them. 
The promises are like a garden of flowers, fenced in and enclosed, which no stranger may gather, but only the children of the family. Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman. He had no right to the family. Cast out this bondwoman and her son, as Sarah once said to Abraham, Genesis 21, 10. In the same way, the unbeliever is not adopted. He is not part of the household. And God will say at the day of judgment, Cast out this son of the bondwoman into utter darkness, where is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, 12, 25, 30. 10. If we are children, then we will have our Father's blessing. They are the seed which the Lord has blessed. Isaiah 61, 9. We read that Isaac blessed his son Jacob. God give thee of the dew of heaven. Genesis 27, 28. This was not only a prayer for Jacob, but, as Luther says, it was also a prophecy of that happiness and blessing that would come upon him and his posterity. Therefore, every adopted child has his heavenly Father's blessing. There is a special blessing distilled into all that he possesses. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 29, 11. See also Exodus 23, 25. Not only will he give them peace, but they will have it with a blessing. The wicked have the things they enjoy with God's permission, but the adopted have them with God's love. The wicked have them by providence, but the saints have them by promise. Isaac had only one blessing to give. Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Genesis 27, 38. However, God has more than one blessing for his children. He blesses them in their souls, bodies, names, estate, and posterity. He blesses them with the upper springs and the nether springs. Joshua 15:19. He multiplies to bless them, and his blessing cannot be reversed. As Isaac said concerning Jacob, I have blessed him, yea, and he shall be blessed. Genesis 27:33. So God blesses his children, and they will be blessed. 11. If we are children, then all things that happen will turn to our good. All things work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8:28. This includes both good things and evil things. Good things work for good to God's children. Mercies will do them good. The mercies of God will soften them. David's heart was overcome with God's mercy. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? 2 Samuel 7:18. I was of a lowly family. I held the shepherd's staff. Who am I that now I should hold the royal scepter? You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. You have made a promise that my children will sit upon the throne, and even that the blessed Messiah will come from my line and race. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? It is as if he had said, Do men show such undeserved kindness? See how this good man's heart was softened and melted by mercy. The flint is most quickly broken upon a soft pillow. Mercies make the children of God more fruitful. The ground bears the better crop for the cost that is laid upon it. God gives his children health, and they spend and are spent for Christ. 2 Corinthians 12:15. He gives them wealth, and they honor the Lord with their substance. The backs and bellies of the poor are the field where they sow the precious seed of their charity. A child of God makes his possessions a golden clasp to bind his heart more tightly to God, and a footstool to raise him up higher toward heaven. Ordinances will work for good to God's children. The word preached will do them good. It is a savor of life. 2 Corinthians 2.16. It is a lamp to the feet. Psalm 119.105. And a laver to their hearts. Ephesians 5.26. The word preached is a means of health and a chariot of salvation. It is an engrafting and a transforming word. It is a word with unction, anointing their eyes to see that light. The preaching of the word is that structure from which Christ looks forth and shows himself to his saints. 
This golden pipe of the sanctuary conveys the water of life. To the wicked, the word preached works for evil. The word of life becomes a savor of death. 2 Corinthians 2.16. The same cause may have various and even contrary effects. The sun dissolves the ice but hardens the clay. To the unregenerate and profane, the word is not humbling but hardening. Jesus Christ, the best of preachers, was to some people a rock of offense. 1 Peter 2.8. The Jews drank death from his sweet lips. It is sad that milk would kill anyone. The wicked drink poison from the word, whereas the children of God drink the milk of the word and are nourished unto salvation. 1 Peter 2 2. The sacrament works for good to the children of God. In the word preached, the saints hear Christ's voice. In the sacrament, they have his kiss. The Lord's Supper is to the saints a feast of fat things. Isaiah 25, 6. It is a healing and sealing ordinance. In this bowl, or rather chalice, a bleeding Savior is brought in to revive weak spirits. The sacrament has glorious effects in the hearts of God's children. It awakens their affections, strengthens their faith, subdues their sin, revives their hopes, and increases their joy. It gives a foretaste of heaven. Difficult things work for good to God's children. Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. Psalm 112, 4. Poverty works for good to God's children. It starves their lusts. It increases their graces. Poor of the world, rich in faith. James 2, 5. Poverty leads us to prayer. When God has clipped his children's wings by poverty, they fly swiftly to the throne of grace. Sickness works for their good. It will bring the body of death into decay. Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16. It is like those two laurels at Rome, when the one withered, the other flourished. When the body withers, the soul of a Christian flourishes. How often we have seen an active faith in a languishing body. Hezekiah was better on his sickbed than upon his throne. When he was upon his sickbed, he humbled himself and wept. When he was on his throne, he grew proud. Isaiah 39, 2. God's children recover by sickness. In this sense, out of weakness they are made strong. Hebrews 11, 34. Reproach works for good to God's children. It increases their grace and their glory. Disgrace increases their grace. By dunging his ground, the farmer makes the soil richer and more fertile. God lets the wicked dung his people with reproaches and slander so that their hearts may be a richer soil for grace to grow in. Reproach increases their glory. He who unjustly takes from a saint's credit will add to his crown. The sun shines brighter after an eclipse. The more a child of God is eclipsed by reproaches, the brighter he will shine in the kingdom of heaven. Persecution to God's children works for good. The godly may be compared to that plant that Gregory Nazianzen speaks of, which lives by dying and grows by cutting. The zeal and love of the saints increases by sufferings. Their joy flourishes. Tertullian says that the primitive Christians rejoiced more in their persecutions than in their deliverances. Death works for good to the children of God. It is like the whirlwind to the prophet Elijah. It blew off his mantle, but carried him up to heaven. 2 Kings 2, 11-13. In the same way, death to a child of God is like a strong whirlwind that blows off the robe of his flesh, for the body is merely the robe that the soul is wrapped in, but carries up the soul to God. This is the glorious privilege of the children of God. Everything that happens will do them good. When the children of God get to heaven, as Chrysostom said, they will glorify God for all difficult providences.
and twelve. Lastly, if we are children, we will never finally perish. John five twenty four ten twenty eight. Those who are adopted are out of the power of damnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans eight one. Will a father condemn his own son? God will never disinherit any of his children. Fathers may disinherit their children for some fault. Reuben lost the claim of his birthright because of incest. Genesis forty nine four. What's the reason parents disinherit their children? Surely it is because they can make them no better. They cannot make them prepared for the inheritance. However, when we are bad, our heavenly Father knows how to make us better. He can make us prepared to inherit. Giving thanks unto the Father who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance. Colossians 1.12. Therefore, since it is in His power to make us better, and to work in us a suitability and readiness for the inheritance, certainly He will never disinherit us. Because this is such a sweet privilege, and the life of a Christian's comfort lies in it, therefore I will clarify it by arguments that the children of God cannot perish in the end. The inheritance of hell and damnation is cut off. The best of God's children have that guilt that deserves hell, but Christ is the friend at court who has pleaded for their pardon. Therefore, the damning power of sin is taken away, which I will prove. The children of God cannot ultimately perish because God's justice is satisfied for their sins. The blood of Christ is the price paid not only meritoriously, but efficaciously for all those who believe. Since this is the blood of God, Acts 20, 28, justice is fully satisfied and does not advance to condemn those for whom this blood was shed and to whom it is applied. Jesus Christ was a guarantor. He stood bound for every child of God as a guarantee. He said to justice, Have patience with them, and I will pay you all. Matthew 18:26 so that the believer cannot be subject to wrath God will not require the debt twice both of the surety and of the debtor Romans 3:24-26 God is not only merciful in pardoning his children but he is righteous in doing so He is just to forgive 1 John 1:9 it is an act of God's righteousness and justice to spare the sinner when he has been satisfied in the surety. A sentence of condemnation cannot pass upon the children of God because they are God's children as well as Christ's spouse. Song of Solomon 4.11 There is a marriage union between Christ and the saints. Every child of God is a part of Christ. He is a part of the spiritual body of Christ. Will a member of Christ perish? A child of God cannot perish unless Christ perishes. Jesus Christ is the husband and the judge, and will he condemn his own spouse? Every child of God is transformed into the likeness of Christ. He has the same spirit, the same judgment, and the same will. He is a living picture of Christ. As Christ bears the saints' names upon his heart, so they bear his image upon their hearts. Galatians 4.19 Will Christ allow his own image to be destroyed? Theodosius considered them traitors who defaced his image. Christ will not let his image in believers be defaced and marred. He will not endure to see his own picture burned in the fire. The sea not only has stinking carrion, but it also has jewels thrown into it. But none of God's jewels will ever be thrown into the frightful sea of hell. If God's children could be capable of eventually perishing, then pardon of sin would not be a privilege. The Scripture says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Psalm 32, 1. However, what blessedness would there be in having sin forgiven if afterward a final and condemnatory sentence would pass upon the heirs of promise? 
How would a person be any better for the king's pardon if he were condemned after he were pardoned? If the children of God would be eventually disinherited, then the scripture could not be fulfilled that tells us of glorious rewards. Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Psalm 58 11. God sweetens his commands with promises, he ties duty and reward together. As in the body the veins carry the blood and the arteries carry the spirits, so one part of the word carries duty in it, and another part of the word carries reward. If the adopted of God would eternally perish, what reward would there be for the righteous? Moses acted indiscreetly in looking to the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 11:26. By consequence, there would be a door opened to despair. By all this, it appears that the children of God cannot be disinherited or rejected. If they would lose happiness, then Christ would lose his purchase and would have died in vain. Thus we have seen the glorious privileges of the children of God. What an encouragement this is to follow Christ! How may this tempt people to turn godly? Can the world compete with a child of God? Can the world give such privileges as these? As Saul said, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands? 1 Samuel 22 7. Can the world do for you that which God does for his children? Can it give you pardon of sin or eternal life? Is not the gleamings of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Ebaiza? Judges 8 2. Is not godliness gain? What is there in sin that people would love it? The work of sin is drudgery, and the wages are death. Those who see more in sin than in the privileges of adoption, let them go on and have their ears bored to the devil's service. Deuteronomy 15 17.